0: Does it involve lightning and a brain transplant? Oh uh.
1: <laughs> Yes! <laughs> <laughs> no, but it does involve a fright wig.
0: This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to slash New Relic. This podcast is also sponsored by RailsThemes.com. Have an app only a mother could love? Check out RailsThemes.com. They're also giving out some pretty cool swag at RailsConf, so find them, get some, and thank them for sponsoring Ruby Rogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 50 of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. That's right, we've done 50 of these. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hello, hello. We also have James Edward Gray. Hey, everybody. Josh Susser. Good morning. And I'm Charles Maxwood from Code.com. We also have a guest rogue, that's Jeff Casimir.
2: Hello. Jeff, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly for the people who don't know who you are? Sure. My name is Jeff Kazimir. I'm from D.C. Right now, I'm the lead instructor of Hungry Academy. Also run a small training company called Jumpstar Lab. Run around the world teaching Ruby and Rails classes. Cool. I was... You gonna take a plane. Uh, you know, occasionally, but you got to stay in shape.
0: So. I was talking to uh, Steve Klavnik, who's also been on the show, incidentally, and I didn't know that he was working for you. So, yeah,
2: might. Steve, uh, St- Steve's working on teaching, especially co-teaching some of the larger classes. Um, so it's really nice to have two teachers in the room, get a little more, bit more of a dialogue. Also, I love that Steve knows a lot more than I do about pretty much everything. So when I get some really hard question, I can just defer to Steve and then he has the answer. So you
0: don't have to be an expert in order to teach? Uh,
2: I think it's actually a disadvantage to be a true expert to teach, because it's very easy to forget the novice perspective. Uh, And that's really where I think you see most programmers go wrong when they try and teach somebody to program. Uh, Frequently what I see in blog posts and so forth, people get the idea they're gonna show someone how to program. They know that setting up the environment, for instance, is a big pain in the ass. And so they will walk detail by detail through setting up the environment and then go, okay, now do programming. You're
3: like, <laughs> hey, this is cool. We're only like 10 seconds in, and this is a, this is a topic I love. Um, James, just there, go do programming. You're right. Go do programming. There's actually a really good coverage on this in um, Pragmatic Thinking and Learning, mm-hmm. that Andy Hunt book. Um, he talks about that. Uh, Dreyfus model of skill acquisition mm-hmm. and there's actually a reason that experts make bad teachers and that's because they're so far ahead of you on the Dreyfus model right and ideally you want to learn from someone who's just one or two steps above you on the Dreyfus model because that is
1: that is, that is one good option James it will finish finish what you're gonna say
3: well I was just all I was gonna say is that the reasoning given in the book is that one or two levels above you they, they're still close enough to the problems you're encountering that, that, you know, they had those fairly recently and they can remember what that's like and frame things in those terms, but they have the level or two above you so they can, you know, help you scoot up the ladder, basically. So, what were so you I, going to say, Josh? Well, I
1: was going to say, I, I think that, that is, um, that's a common thing and that people who are closer to you on that scale. Uh, you know, have a natural connection to your state perspective and state of mind, so they can access that more easily. But I think, like many things, you know, being an instructor teaching stuff is a skill that can be learned, and you can learn how to communicate with people who are not as advanced as you are, pretty effectively. And some of the best instructors that I had in college were the absolute masters of their field. But you know, I got to learn computer graphics from from James Blinn, who. You know, built all the Voyager simulations way back when, and he was you know, the top of his field, but he was also um, an incredibly talented instructor and was able to describe things in ways that were accessible to, you know, college freshmen. So,
2: I think I, what you're saying is the, you know, the skill of teaching is really uh, about empathy. And an experienced teacher like that, even if they do have a wide gap between their skill level and the skill level of those who are teaching, can adequately empathize kind of down to their level and their understanding. The, the trouble is that when you only have content expertise and don't have the experience of, uh, of teaching or, uh, in this case, empathizing deeply of skill that it's hard to remember. And my favorite analogy uh, is I, I know on a geek podcast, it's probably bad to make a sports analogy, but a friend of mine uh, is a great runner. And he said when he was in middle school, he didn't understand like when he would always win a race, he would look at the other kids and say like, why don't you just move your legs faster? you know And that's essentially,
3: I think the expert problem
2: of like you look at people, you're like, well, what just do programming, you
3: know obviously. <laughs> I'll ask you guys to explain that sports joke to me later.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one thing that I've, I've seen here is uh, some, something along the lines of what uh, Josh is saying is that um, a lot of the people, even in our community, who are kind of out there with, with some expertise, you know, I'm going to use an example of Peter Cooper. You know, he does his uh, Ruby Reloaded and, you know, he's, he's done quite a bit of research on, on Ruby and the language and stuff, but he opens himself up to feedback. And is able to then figure out what it is that people aren't getting out of his course that they should be. And uh, in in that sense, then he's able to make sure that he covers in, in in enough depth and with enough clarity to make sure that people are getting it. Because... Um, you know, he may not always know exactly what people want to learn and he may not always know how to explain that to them. But if they're giving him feedback, I didn't quite understand this or I wanted to hear more about that, then he's able to actually tailor the course so that it works for the students that are coming in. And, and I think that's really important is to get that that level of feedback, so it's not just one-way communication, you're disseminating knowledge from your brain to these other brains, but but getting that back so that you can learn to be a better communicator as you're sharing the knowledge.
2: Yeah, I think that's true, and it, it's part of why I think the the live teaching can, to a certain extent, never be replaced. Um, you know, what Peter's doing with his class, you know, where it's online, or what we're doing here with our uh, in-person classes. that ability to react to feedback on the fly is essential for really kind of optimizing the learning process. Uh, A book cannot anticipate all the directions that different learners are going to struggle. The same with podcasts, the the same with, you know, videos online and so forth. You just can't differentiate when you have fixed content.
0: All right, I quit. See you guys. Sorry.
3: So this is two shows in a row where we've talked about how this is all about human communication. I'm going to stop listening to this show.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. People seem to like the last one.
3: Oh, yeah. Good point. All right. So, Jeff, tell us before we get into the whole Hungry Academy thing. So you you did trainings through Jumpstart Labs. And did you do that mostly for companies or what?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I should back way up. I, I started uh, teaching normal public school. Um, so I taught middle school technology and I taught high school computer science here in D.C. Uh, through Teach for America. Oh, he's uh, way braver than I thought. <laughs> it was the probably the best years of my life um, and taught high school Um, computer science using Ruby, first using Java, they hated it, I hated it, and then we flipped over to using Ruby, Um, and that's where I really learned a lot more about writing and teaching Ruby there. Um, Then was in school administration for a little while, started Jumpstart Lab in 2009, and yeah, started doing, my vision originally was to teach public classes here in D.C., um, that we have a lot of nonprofits and non-governmental organizations and so forth that I thought I would teach them how to program and I'm not sure if any of you have ever seen a nonprofit, but they're not exactly the most efficiently run organizations, uh, mostly because they don't have technologic expertise and they don't have the money to buy products. So I thought we would teach them how to program. It turned out. Uh, that was very hard and getting getting people to come and, and be interested in it um, so then started branching out teaching companies traveling around usually going in doing somewhere from like three to five days of uh, the most popular of course is intro rails everybody wants to write rails applications uh, so we'd go in and do, I would kind of trick people a little bit and uh, do just pure Ruby for a day or two. I think it's a a serious mistake to jump straight into Rails. And so we do pure Ruby for about two days and then Rails for three days and send them on their way. And a lot of them, unfortunately, would start billing their clients the next Monday, (laughs) building Rails applications. Awesome. That is great. That's America. They didn't start charging while they were in the class. Uh, they probably did. You know, it's probably uh, preparation and professional development.
4: <laughs> Jeez,
2: yeah.
3: That's insanely great. So, how did the Hungry Academy thing come about?
2: Sure. Uh, so. Chad Fowler and I, uh, you know, Chad used to be my competition when he was teaching uh, Ruby classes and we've known each other for a couple of years. We were having a conversation about uh, this idea that if we had good people that didn't know anything about programming, how much could you teach them in six months? And we both agreed that we thought we couldn't teach them everything about computer science. Obviously, that's ridiculous. Um, And we couldn't teach them everything you might learn in a good computer science program. But we thought we could teach them everything that you should learn in a pretty good program. That you could come out and be ready for a career in software development under the understanding that career in software development means constant learning. That you have enough of a foundation after the program um, to be an effective developer and to continue learning, continue maybe specializing in different areas and so forth. Um, So that conversation happened about uh, September. And then I had, I was at uh, Nordic Ruby um, out in Finland, and then I had a very long plane ride. And then I just sat there in the chair. I couldn't sleep. I just thought about the idea for uh, about six hours. And then I just started writing and writing and writing and writing, sent Chad the budget. And he said, okay, let's do it. And here we are. That's awesome. That, that's actually
0: really cool. I, I've always wondered that because if – I don't know how many of you guys have a, a degree in computer science or something related to that.
1: But wait, wait there are actually people who have degrees in that?
0: I don't have a computer science degree. I have a computer engineering degree, which <laughs> yeah. which is similar in some ways and, and not so similar in others. But, um, you know, you, you wind up – you you do. You wind up taking a lot of classes in a lot of things that, you know, don't necessarily apply. And the other thing is, is um, I, I think it's interesting when you when you're talking about like basic computer science or programming understanding. I mean, you you get most of that within your first couple of years of of school. But then when you're dealing with things, you know, as an upperclassman, I mean, you're you're taking a lot of of, of breadth, you know, where you're getting into some depth in some of these topics that you may or may not use. And the other thing is, is they don't teach you any of the skills that come with working in a team or I remember I took one class and it was it was programming. Uh, what was it? It was it was some kind of like how companies manage their programming projects. And so we spent I think half the semester on waterfall, and they they didn't they didn't like say waterfall is or isn't the way to do it. They just kind of said this is the way that most companies do it, so you need to know this. And then we spent a week or two on agile, and it was just like yeah, there there are these people out there that do it this way. And, you know, I get out into the real world and it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, that most of the companies that I worked at were actually they, they used the ad hoc method uh, to manage their projects and, you you know, just stuff like that. And so it'd be pretty interesting to see, you know, a program like this that's focused specifically on these particular skills and just getting people to the point where it's like, okay, you know, you're hireable, you're, you know, you're, you're a decent enough programmer to, to go out and get a job somewhere.
2: Yeah. I think, uh, part of the challenge with computer science education, in my opinion, is that we need to think of it a little bit more like medical school where, A doctor, you know, all doctors have certain fundamental knowledge that they share and understand, but then as soon as you get out, you're going to start specializing and you're going to become a radiologist, you're going to become, you know, a surgeon, you're going to become a hand doctor, et cetera. And computer science is really the same way. Like there is a lot of important knowledge, you know, about assembly and machine language and ones and zeros and so forth that you need for some segments of computer science and it's unfortunate that a lot of time in the conversation, I think people disrespect certain parts of their undergrad thing. Like, oh, why did I learn about uh, you know these obscure languages that I'll never use? Well, they're they're valuable to some specialization, just not the one you ended up in. Right. And if we can kind of specialize our approach, our I, I think we can make everybody happier, kind of achieve a better end. Yeah. yeah, I
3: think I think that's kind of important, actually. What you just said, like. I mean, Assembler, you know, knowing Assembler, I mean, does it make me a better programmer? Sure, I'm sure it does to some degree, you know, just because I've been exposed to that and stuff like that, you know, but also, you know, in, in my many years on the job, I've I've other than outside of a programming contest, I've literally never had to write any Assembler, you know, and it just doesn't really apply to the kind of programming I do, you know, so.
0: Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, I took classes where I had to write assembler, you know, we, we wrote, uh, interrupt queues and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, you get down to the op codes and, and things on the processor. We also, I took an operating system class. And so we had to write like the paging algorithms, uh, least recently used and things like that so that you understand memory management in your, in your machine and, uh, you know, just stuff like that. And yeah, it's not stuff that I've used directly. But understanding it at that deep level, what's going on, has really helped me kind of think about, okay, well, you know, if if it's paging crap out, it's gonna slow down. And, you know, it, it has to translate it down to an opcode eventually. So, you know, I kind of have an idea of what's going on at the at the basic level. And so, you know, that helps me kind of think about how the machine consumes my code. And then, you know, I I can move along. So, so there is, I think, application for most of the stuff that you do, it just may not be what you're directly coding in.
2: Right. And I think you get into like a Pareto principle situation, you know, like a 80, 20 rule of like that experience, you know, James having that assembly background, it's going to influence him positively, but is it going to influence him positively enough relative to the effort put in to gaining the experience in the first place in, in the job and the specialization he chosen no, right? Right. If you were choosing to uh, build video cards, then yes. Yep. Right
3: or operating systems mm-hmm. or something like that, right? And and I've you know trained plenty of people that don't have the assembler background, and and I find like as far as memory management and stuff, yeah, I, I'm sure it does help understand that kind of thing better. But at the same time, you know, especially if you're a web developer or something. You know, I can write a tight loop in Ruby and allocate some massive arrays inside of it, and I can show you memory management gone wrong real fast, you know. <laughs> and, and it's something you can understand. Okay, think about this. This loop's running around, and every single time it makes 10000 objects, you know, and then you know. You Th- this is your
0: closure. Up. This is your closure on drugs. Any questions? Okay, right. uh,
3: yeah.
1: Well, okay, we, we covered this ground a bit on the teaching programming or teaching Ruby episode with Mike Clark about, you know, all the different things that you, you – uh, you can teach people that aren't Ruby that help their Ruby. Yeah. Um, the you know so yeah, I think we still think that's the same thing. <laughs>
3: <laughs> okay, so getting back on topic as jo- Josh cracks the whip. Um, so Jeff, we know about the experiment or the, the you know the discussion, the experimental mm-hmm. thought that led to Hungry Academy, but tell us what it is because it's kind of a neat thing.
2: Sure. So Hungry Academy, um, the design of it was. Let's get 24 people who we think have the right character and the right drive and put them in an intense classroom-style environment, uh, give them all the support, give them all the resources, and what turned out to be five months, and see if at the end they can be competent developers. Um, So they work with me and Matt Yoho. Um, We have a mix of class time, kind of full group instruction style. Uh, they work in pair and team projects uh, they do community work where they're uh, working with me with the organization called Code now to teach high school kids about programming. Um, they're doing open source work they're doing presentations and just trying to build in them all the skills that I think you need to be like not just a good Ruby programmer but a, a significant important part of the Ruby community. Uh, I thought Chad in his kind of opening address to them, was really kind of poignant. I thought that his expectations of them were not to just be good enough to not get fired, but to be some of the leadership of the next 10 years. Like his phrase was, I want to read your books. You know, I want to be inspired by your work. And so that's what we're trying to do.
3: So how did you find that people that you're teaching?
2: Yeah, we, um, you know, Hacker News, I have to admit, was a big source. Uh, We put up the article. um, We saw about 30,000 visitors through that day or two days. Uh, I did a lot of outreach. I have kind of a diversity agenda. So I did a lot of outreach, um, particularly to women in engineering and programming groups um, and solicited applications. And altogether, um, we had... Several hundred uh, applications resulted in about a six percent, no, four percent acceptance rate. And we're were pretty satisfied. Now, I think that now that the program actually exists and some more people know about it, uh, I'm somewhat scared about the next round of applications, what the numbers are going to be like.
4: How did you uh, decide on who goes in, who gets in? So
2: we started uh, the legal department just about shit their pants, or excuse me, peed their pants uh, on this, but it was really important to me. I wanted to do a video application, and if you've ever been involved with HR, the idea of having a video application is about the worst idea an HR department's ever heard of, Uh, (laughs) because you're just opening yourself to all kinds of discrimination, uh, accusations. I had faith that we could uh, evaluate the videos objectively, um, rate them on criteria. And when it came down to it, I felt that it was necessary because what we were looking for was personality, not credentials. And what was on the resume really didn't tell me very much of anything. I wanted to know about the people and what, how did they, just how did they feel? You know, like how, uh, what kind of drive did they show? What, How c- clearly could they communicate ideas? Uh, how could they take a question and kind of run with it and and just be the kind of people that we want to work with? Uh, so that was really critical. If they passed that phase, they went into a phone interview. They passed the phone interview. They came in for the in-person interview. Um, Living Social has a model with where you do three interviews. Uh, one of the most interesting parts, maybe to y'all, is uh, we had to figure out a substitution for what's normally the coding exercise. Normally, Living Social gives you a little uh, half hour or one hour programming exercise not not one of these super brain teaser things but just like let's write some code together and make sure that you more or less know what you say you know and that was challenging for us because we're evaluating people who don't know how to program how are we going to ask them to program Uh, i thought about various options and then Isolated who I thought had the same problem and how they address it which is law schools Um, that law schools are trying to assess your Skills for understanding parsing and working with the law without actually knowing anything about the law So let's take um, an exercise from the LSAT a logical exercise from the LSAT and we'll have that be your programming challenge um, I was also very interested in to see how people respond to coaching because one of the things that I think is absurd about most programming interviews is it's like, go write a crossword puzzle generator on the whiteboard, right? As this has been discussed online, number one, writing on a whiteboard is stupid. Uh, number two, that's just not how we work. So instead we sat down with them, uh, me, Matt, or one of the other developers sat down with them and really paired on the logic problem uh, where we were trying to force them to to make the big logical leaps themselves, but still helping them along the way, helping answer their questions, helping pointing out uh, places that we thought their, their work had weaknesses or mistakes. Um, uh, and so the real question was not, can they get all the answers right? But how do they approach problems? How do they respond uh, to feedback from a teammate or, or a mentor and so forth? And I was really satisfied with how it turned out.
0: Nice. So so when did the class actually start? Because it sounds like you've already gotten going.
2: Yeah, we started uh, March 5th. And so they're in week six now, I believe.
3: So how's it going
2: uh, so far? Don't worry, I'm
3: sure all your students will listen to this. Are are they billing
2: (laughs) clients yet? They're not Ah. billing clients. Um, (laughs) Something that was very important to me, and this is actually uh, something that other people feel very strongly the other way. So with ThoughtBot's apprentice program, um, they tout as a feature that they are billing clients right away for their work. Um, It was very important to me that this be... A kind of pure academic environment and that these people, while they're learning, have no business responsibility. Uh, and conversely, deliver no value whatsoever to the business. Because I wanted to remove that pressure and say, let's just focus on developing you and getting you ready. And then only when we say you're ready would we put you on a project. Because what what does it say to your team, I think, to put someone on a project or to bill a client that. This person's not good. Like they don't know what they're doing yet. Why would we? Why would we have them working on production code? That uh, that just doesn't make sense to me.
0: Oh come on, that's the guy I want to pay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. uh, So we did this with
1: with new hires at Pivotal a lot, where the the first uh, couple weeks of them being on you know being a pivot, you know we considered them green and you know clients didn't get billed for their time, but putting them on an actual client project and having them. You know, pair with experienced developers and come up to speed quickly
2: was the best way to get them going. Yeah, I think it can definitely have value as long as you're kind of assuming that whatever they do, you're going to like, you're not expecting it to necessarily deliver value. It's also a difference, I think, when you have a few apprentices versus a real cohort. When you only have two people, four people, if you just have them working on kind of academic projects, it's very artificial right? But with this group, we have 24 people. When they're building a project, there's a whole, their whole world is also building the project. Like it's very real to them because all the other teams are building the same thing. Um, And so there's kind of this, you know, friendly competition to it. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to build this thing and I'm going to throw it away. It's we're actually like creating ideas. Mm -hmm. We're trying to make it as good as possible. And so we can uh, kind of represent our group well.
0: So do people have to pay or are they getting paid to be there or how does that work? Getting
2: paid? They're getting paid quite a bit, I have to say. Um, so they, they, they are living social employees. Um, they have a contract that goes through the end of the course and then the expectation, uh, presuming that they meet presuming that they meet their learning goals uh, is that they would join the living social engineering team at that point. Right.
0: But there, are they are they is there a stipulation in the contract for that or
2: uh, as far as the the job afterwards? Yeah, it's not guaranteed. Um, so that was something very important to the legal department. The the hope is that 24 out of 24 are ready. Uh, but we didn't want it to be a situation where you get in and then you can just kind of hang out and then you get this sweet job at the end. You know, right. This, you have to earn it.
0: And and on the flip side, you know, can they can they go through Hungry Academy and they go work for Groupon?
2: Yeah, the uh, well, ooh, that would hurt. That would hurt. <laughs> uh, the the agreement is for them to stick around eighteen months after they finish the program.
0: Okay. Um,
2: which is not which is not very long, I don't think, given the investment that's being put into them. Yeah, I, I don't know. In internet years, that's like a decade. <laughs> yeah, Josh would have already had four jobs during that eighteen months, but. <laughs> and three
1: of them at the same time <laughs> is that that tri- tri- oh. Is that triplets
4: <laughs> what is the uh, can you talk a little bit about the like the the background of the people that you found as far as like um, I mean what is what do they already have educationally um, where are they from stuff like that sure
2: uh, 16 out of the 24 identified as non-developers, so they did not consider themselves to have any developer background of significance. Uh, Of the remaining eight, about six or so have like a traditional computer science background, Um, so they were mostly Java programmers, uh, I think maybe one Microsoft programmer. Uh, And then among the other 16, we've got architects, MBAs, uh, people that were in finance, just kind of all over the map, uh, a neuroscientist, you name wow, that's it.
3: That's so awesome. Have you seen um, differences so far in the first six weeks from the people that are kind of developer-y, from the people that aren't kind of developer-y?
2: Sure. Uh, I mean, the, the developer people, of course, we, it was very important to me. We spent a lot of time doing team building at the front end, uh, which people, everyone hates, right? Everyone hates going into the room and be like, okay, we're going to come out all being friends, whatever. Uh, but I think it really paid off in breaking down those barriers of not having the like, oh, we're the 16 dumb ones and you're the eight who know everything. Uh, the, the group. I was trying to take a lot of the model from Teach for America, where we were a core together and really relied on each other. It was a non-competitive environment. And we wanted the same here with Hunger Academy. That's why it's not like, oh, there's 18 jobs for the 24 of you. Like, go slit each other's throats. It's the we Hungry Games. Every- yeah, it's not the Hungry Hunger Games. Uh, <laughs> we want everyone to succeed. So the difference is there. I think have, has, have been erased pretty quickly, uh, both socially and in programming. Uh, that The people have been able to pick it up shockingly fast. I have to say, it, it sounds cheesy for me to say this, but I'm blown away at the progress they've made at this point. Uh, you know, coming into the project, I could not say with hundred percent certainty that any of them would be ready after five months. And now, uh, i I can definitely say some of them, I think all of them will be ready. Cool. so that's
3: that's interesting. You chose to use a mix of people that had, you know, at least some idea of what a developer did and stuff. and then and then some did didn't was that like a purposeful choice? Like did you want to have it where, some people can help guide in those ideas or, or what?
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, I think uh, that, that was a really common question early on. People would say, like, well, how can you possibly teach some people who have literally never written an instruction before and other people who have a computer science degree in the same room? And it's like, well, okay, let me flip it on you. How can you possibly build a product with some people who have been building Rails applications for five years and some people who just started a month ago? Like, how could that possibly work? Oh, well, you divide up work, you find ways for people to cooperate, you set up these mentoring relationships, you know, you be purposeful about the social side and that kind of people engineering and then it actually works out fabulously. Having everyone, it's just this artificial idea that you could ever have everyone the same, right? That just doesn't happen. Even if they somehow started at the same point, they would all learn at different speeds anyway and then you'd be back to the same uh, heterogeneous situation. So instead we just planned for that from the start, built it on purpose and said, okay, everything is going to be structured to accommodate people at different learning levels. And that's just it's it's not like revolutionary Ideas. That's what any good fourth grade teacher would be doing, too. I'm just teaching older people.
0: <laughs> oh, come Sometimes on. They, like, we, we know that the public school system works where everybody starts at the same level and finishes at the same level, right? Um,
2: yeah. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't quite work that way.
4: I actually have a question for you based on, on partly on your uh, your public school experience. Uh-huh. Um no, clearly, so so Hungry Academy, um, you're taking a group of people that are are kind of self starters. You know, they're they're motivated to to do the uh, the whole um, uh, interview process um, and and the video and everything. And, and some of them are already professionals in, in various fields. Um, something I think about a lot is uh, you know the country is transitioning to an information economy. Blah blah blah. Um, and I think about what you know. What does it? What does it take? Is it you know the, to take people from you know the ghetto and the trailer park mm-hmm. um, that clearly are not getting into computer science programs right now? Um, is it even possible? What would it take to get people from there um, up to the point of being in something like Hungry Academy? Do you have any insight on that?
2: Yeah, it's, I mean it's a hard problem. Uh, what it reminds me of is this book whose title is escaping me at the moment, uh, but it talks about. Skills not being born, they're learned. And one of the first uh, ways that you build skill is through the ignition, which is the belief that you can build the skill. And I I think the challenge right now is that programmers – Uh, relatively accurately are, you know, represented as 20s, early 30s white men. And if that's not you, there isn't an ignition that says like, I could be a programmer. I could be that person. Um, There are also tons of logistical challenges. Uh, One of the biggest that I saw from education was that giving technology is very sexy. Like you can get foundations to put a hundred computers in a school hiring people, uh, to maintain those machines and to buy all the replacement parts that go wrong. That's not as attractive. And so what I would commonly see is I would go to schools. I would go to my friend's schools, for instance, and just see the computer lab. And it's like, oh yeah, two thirds of the machines quote unquote don't work. Right. And so you go Mm -hmm. look at them. It's like, oh, loose power plug. Oh, the PS2 pins are bent. Let me get a mechanical pencil and fix them. And that's the first, like the, the fundamental level. Uh, you know, Somebody brought up education theory before, so I'll throw Maslow's hierarchy at you, uh, which is about kind of these base needs and then your intermediate needs until eventually you can uh, re- self-actualize to become the person you want to be. And right now, for those people to become technologists, we're not meeting their base needs. They don't have the fundamentals generally speaking, uh, to do it on their own. Like they don't have access to technology. They don't have access to the internet. They might have phones, but that's not enough to do programming.
0: Right. So one thing that I, I kind of want to take this uh, maybe to a, a different uh, level and that is, um, I've been talking to several people about, um, putting together maybe a little, uh, camp or something out here for, um, you know, teenage girls or younger preteen girls, um, you know, and, and kind of get them interested at this point so that they can move into, um, programming and, you know, maybe reach out to minorities though. There aren't as many, uh, minority people out here in Utah as there are in other areas of the country. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know. How do we how do we set up and structure a program so that they can get that ignition?
2: Yeah, I think that's the ignition is what we're currently doing better at, I think, like, uh, you know, whether you look at RailsBridge or um, CodeNow that I'm working with, so forth, that we're doing better at showing people like it's not that scary you could possibly do it but education is not a problem that you can solve in a weekend or in 2 weeks and right. if we want to really make a difference we have to be looking at these you know 3 year commitment 5 year 8 year commitment that's how you're going to change lives in a weekend no matter what, you could have the greatest teacher, give them computers, whatever, whatever, you're going to make incremental change at best uh, and and possibly, possibly inspire some of them. But if you want to make systemic change, you're talking about systemic commitment, which is a lot harder.
0: So what you're saying is because, I mean, there's there's no way for me to get into the schools. At least I don't believe so. But, uh, you know, setting something up that, you know, recurs that the kids can come back to and um, you know, be involved in on a regular basis and get feedback and, and and things like that.
2: Or exactly, yeah. I would say I would encourage people to get involved with a small group over a long time rather than a large group in a short time. So, if uh, you know you well as an adult, you always want to do things with kids with other adults. Don't know. T- <laughs> Pro tip number one: don't be the only adult in the room. Uh, and so you get together a couple people who are interested, and then. Uh solicit, there are probably existing organizations in your area. In DC, we have several. Um, one of the best is the LAYC um, and they organize after school programs for kids. And if someone called them and said, Hey, I would like to uh you know work with some kids every Wednesday evening for an hour on programming, they would do backflips to have you in and facilitate everything and try and try and make it as easy as possible. They just like you can't hire programmers. How how could they possibly pay anyone uh, to teach programming? They just can't. There's no labor out there. So you don't have to do it on your own. And I I think. You know, it does, I mean, you have to be serious when you're talking about kids. Like, you're talking about legal complexities, liabilities, oh, yeah. and all that, and it's much more reasonable to step into a situation where someone else can take care of, of a lot of that for you. Uh, dealing with kids are hard administratively. Like, with Code Now, we're always having kids calling from the Metro, and they're like, oh, I lost my Metro card, and I'm stuck at Metro Center. And you're like, okay, someone's gonna go meet you at Metro Center, give you an extra Metro card, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's hard. They don't just show up with their computers ready to learn every day, right?
3: So that that's interesting. In that, uh, when you created Hungry Academy, I was reading the materials on it when you guys started posting it to the to the internet and stuff. And that was like part of the built-in goal. Really, was almost to change the world, right?
2: Yeah. And to, I, I think, you know, change 24 worlds at the very least, like these people's lives. That's, that's why I got excited about the project because I felt with my uh, teaching with Jumpstart Lab, like teaching our normal three or five day classes, I got away from really feeling like I was having an impact on someone's life. And I love that about high school. I love that about teaching middle school. And it's awesome to now be back in that role, like to know that what we've built even after just six weeks, like I know that these 24 people are forever on a different track than they were back in February.
1: Okay. So, so this is, this all sounds lovely, uh, (laughs) but I, but I, but I I, want to talk about the elephant in the room. And and that's that uh, you know everybody who knows about Living Social and is a Rails developer knows that um, Living Social is like a blue whale swimming through an ocean full of uh, krill Rails developers or Rails developer krill and they're just like eating up all of the Rails developers and they've probably depleted the ocean now and 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 <laughs> I looked at Hungry Academy and I said okay. Living Social needs to create more developers to be able to hire them. Right. It, so I so I love I I love everything you've said about you know changing people's lives and giving people access to education they couldn't get before and having them be supported in it and get paid for it. But the it seems like the fundamental motivation for this is. You got a big company, and they can't hire enough developers
2: to, you know, build the products they want to build. So let's create them. Absolutely, absolutely, and and you know that is 100% the <laughs> the directive from top down. Um, this is about scaling the engineering department. Now that being said, I think we know the kind of reality of te- technology businesses is that people over their career are gonna mo- move companies. There's not an expectation that people are going to stay here at Living Social for 20 years. Um, You know, who knows how long Living Social will be around as a company. But what you find is that people that come in, I think, and have the right skills, have the right understandings, know how to work in teams, they all just keep recombining in different companies. So even if this team doesn't stay together for 20 years, I'm confident that for the rest of their career, they will know each other, they will like each other, and they'll continue to build teams together.
0: So so one other thing um, that I'm I'm really kind of curious about is um, I don't think there's a big company out here, but I've had a lot of smaller companies approach me about, um, you know, setting up some kind of training program where I could I don't know what the right term is. I kind of want to say retrofit, but I know that's not what I'm looking for, you know, developers in other languages and help them, you know, transition to Ruby so that they are um, you know, hireable or prepared to work for some of the companies out here or to bring in non-developers and, and help them come up to speed. Um, I I suppose it's easier if you have like one main benefactor in living social, but uh, out here, you know, how, how would you go about structuring something like this? Or do you think it's just, you know, not feasible?
2: Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of people are, are trying out different models right now you know you look at uh, code Academy in Chicago that's doing great things where uh, people come on their own pay their own tuition and it's a 12week program to kind of get them up uh, up to speed or along the right path at least. Uh, and then you see you know some that are more independent like the hacker school in New York or Dev boot camp. Uh, Dev Bootcamp and Code Academy have relatively similar models, Dev Bootcamp being out in San Francisco. Um, we haven't seen anybody try kind of a fractionalized Hungry Academy yet. Uh, I think we might pursue that down the road, but I really. I'm not sure part of the magic here is that it is one team. Yeah. And I worry about if you had 24 people that are two from this company and three from that company and six from that company, that it it just it couldn't replicate the experience. Now, could it be 85 percent as good? Maybe. Could it be as 100 percent as good? No. Okay.
3: Do you think that part of the success here is is actually having living social, providing the resources, meaning that you have the ability to Create this almost ideal environment, and and uh, you know create the agenda because you have enough backing to do that, right?
2: Exactly, exactly. And then the th- in the last couple. You know, kind of bonus features are things of being. You know, our first week we're talking about uh, this idea of fractal design, and then I said like, oh, let's Ben Schofield, would you mind coming and giving your fractal design talk to them? And he comes down from upstairs and gives his hour-long talk. Or last week we had a session with Nick Seeger, and you know, just being able to pull in. Uh, sorry, as Josh said, like all the krill that have been swallowed. Uh, <laughs> that that we're so fortunate to be surrounded by. Uh, I think that's been really amazing for. The learners that then they really really appreciate it.
3: It's interesting. So, uh, where do you see Hungry Academy going in the future? Like, what kind of things do you want to get them to do as they you know as their skill rises and stuff like that
2: during the program or after the program? Kind of? Uh, sure, both. Yeah, uh, what we're doing right now is we spent a month doing pure Ruby, um, they first touched Rails last week. And that was very important to me, and I think something that's very different from most other programs. Uh, Now they're getting into Rails, and we really threw them in the deep end of, you've got a pair, now go build this relatively complex uh, online shopping platform in three weeks. And so they're hammering through that now. Um, We're gonna then start diversifying, um, starting to, you know, there's kind of this idea I have about Ruby and Rails, that there is not a linear complexity that you just march down and like I do the beginner thing and then I do the intermediate thing and then I do the advanced thing. You really, everyone needs the same fundamentals. And then as soon as you start to hit the intermediate kind of difficulty, it all just fans out. And there isn't one thing that it, it, you know, it's not like so difficult. You just keep pressing forward. It's just you pick these different areas of interest. So we're gonna spend a uh, two-week project working on scaling and like different techniques of scaling. Whether you're talking about caching or you're talking about the ops side and all that. Um, of course, gonna get into JavaScript front ends and involving JavaScript from the client and how to go there. Um, doing more with design. We're reaching out with uh, Donors Choose up in New York. We're doing a project with them where they're gonna build applications using the donors choose API um, that I'm excited about, kind of do some community outreach there. They're going to build applications uh, both consuming and providing APIs and just try and kind of do everything that they need for their job. Just keep keep pushing hard.
3: And then and then when they graduate the academy, what kind of things if in your, you know, in your perfect vision, what would you like to see them doing a year yeah. from now? I would guess that
2: about half of them are probably going to specialize. So here, because the Living Social Engineering team is so large, you can choose to say, you know, I want to work just on big data. And so I I expect there are actually three or four I kind of have my eye on that I think are going to want to go towards the data team and just be going pure back end business metrics, et cetera. Um, On the completely other end of the spectrum are a couple that I think are really well suited for front end development, uh, which is kind of the interface here between the art department and the dev team. Uh, And then I would guess that about 16 of them or so will just be generalists expected to be good at everything, Um, joining the mobile team, joining uh, the merchant services team that's building a lot of cool tools, even like getting involved with iPad, um, mobile work that way, JavaScript front ends, et cetera. So things are really open, I would say, for them.
0: Cool. Well, we're we're right into picks. Does anyone have any other questions before we uh, do the picks? No,
2: I I, I, I have one qu- one quick question,
1: and that's... give me a um, hard question, Josh. W- what are the prerequisites for for getting into Hungry Academy? You said that there's people with with no programming background whatsoever. <laughs> what what do you need to do? What you know? Do you need to have a college education or a high school education or you know no. be able to type? I mean, what 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 do you need to do to get in?
2: Uh, typing is a nice to have. Uh, the We had uh, one of our One of our young men dropped out of college uh, To come here So that's definitely not a requirement uh, What it takes I think is a Ability to demonstrate Number one the right attitude uh, And that attitude is primarily About your drive like how hard are you going to Push yourself because it, it can't succeed as a program like just having me push them all the time. It has to be like if I put you... If you have the resources that you can take advantage of them and you can just work your ass off. Um, second is having... the the ability to communicate clearly and kind of deal with these people issues like building software. You know, I I think Ruby people know this, but most of the world doesn't that building software is not sitting in a cube hacking on a keyboard. Like it is much more about dealing with people about communicating requirements about divvying up work, about helping plus one plus one. (laughs) So if people can demonstrate those skills then i'm happy to have them
0: yeah speaking of those skills if you don't think they're important i i have 49 plus hours of content that you should probably go listen to because <laughs> we have talked quite a bit about a lot of these
2: things
3: so Matt, i have a couple of quick questions did these People all moved to D.C. for the duration? They did. They did.
2: Um, So the stated expectation is that jobs would be here in D.C., which is Living Social Headquarters. Um, There are likely some opportunities in other Living Social offices, including Seattle, um, Portland, the U.K. office, et cetera.
3: So then one more question I thought of is that, You said you were really pushing a a diversity agenda when you built this, so how did it come out? What are the demographics?
2: Yeah. um, I can speak about the gender demographics that we have uh, four women and 20 men, which was kind of my lower end acceptable goal. Uh, I think to the outside, that doesn't sound very impressive, but I think, you know, through the long ongoing conversation about gender in the Ruby community, that the average, I think is much more around like one, two, three 3%. Uh, so that that's a decent showing to start. Uh, I think once we have them as kind of the ignition points and we can show off like, look, This is awesome. Like uh, the young lady who came from customer service and had no programming background whatsoever, like she did it. You can too. I expect to see those numbers increase.
1: Cool. That's awesome.
3: That's great. That's that's
2: wonderful. All right. Well, let's get into the
0: picks. Um, James, why don't you start us off?
3: I actually let Jeff go before me because I know he was going to pick something I was going to pick.
0: <laughs> Jeff, why don't you start us off?
3: Yeah, so uh,
2: my pick this week is a book I'm just digging into uh, called The Rails View by Bruce Williams and Jonathan. Uh, I'm biased because they are friends of mine, but I find it to be a really excellently targeted book because across these seven years now of Rails development, it. The view layer has always been treated as kind of the the one no one wants to talk to or about. You know, like that's just the domain of designers. And I really like how the Rails view um, provides kind of a, an introduction to design and front end things for developers. So it's it's for the kind of people that listen to the Ruby Rogues. Cool. All right.
0: James, why don't you finish starting us off? <laughs>
3: Um I don't know what it is with me like i I seem to go through phases where like you know for a while I'm reading lots of books and then I guess I go through a period where I'm you know kind of burned out on them and stuff like that but um uh I, I think it was the prags that really got me back into it uh, lately They have like a lot of just really cool books coming out lately in my opinion, or maybe it's just that I'm book starved or something but uh, I too was going to mention The Rails View, which I'm also reading right now. So I, I definitely agree with what uh, Jeff said there. And then uh, just a bunch of other books I've picked up lately from the prize. They Had the uh, Rails Three, uh, or sorry, Rails Recipes Third Edition, um, which I, I I don't think I, I read the first one, and then I didn't read the second one, and then I just picked up the third one. Uh, but it's it's an awesome book. It was awesome all the way back to its first edition, um, and just great recipes that go into cool details, you know, working with multiple databases, all kinds of stuff that you do and don't see regularly in Rails, uh, really neat stuff. Um, in Ruby side, the Prags have a new DRuby book, uh, you know, which is all about uh, uh, DRB, which uh, ships with uh, Ruby and is kind of our Ruby-ish RPC uh, framework and stuff. Uh, neat stuff there, too. I mean, like. Even if you don't do any distributed programming, you know, or, or don't usually do that, then you should definitely read this book, you know, because that way you get new ideas, right? New, new things you uh, might think of trying uh, in the future. Um, they just did a really short book uh, on an uh, in, in ebook only or no, I guess there is a paper version of it, um, but on Tmux, uh, which is pretty hot right now. Everybody's kind of playing with, and uh, uh, it's cool stuff, and this you know, book shows you why. Why, why is it cool? Um, and then they have one in beta on deploying with JRuby, and we were actually discussing this one a little bit before the show, you know, that, um, that that's an option out there for a lot of people for various reasons, and, and now there's this book about how you would deploy uh, on the jruby platform so just lots of cool books from the prize lately that i've been enjoying and getting into and uh, so people should check those out we may do some of them as uh, book club books uh, going forward so
0: so do you j deploy with j capistrano to your j server
3: <laughs> yes <laughs>
0: all
1: of that okay um, Josh what are your picks okay I, I got a couple uh, today <clears throat> um, I think probably many people in our audience know who Z Frank is uh, he he actually gave a talk at railsconf uh, way back when uh, an awesome keynote uh, he's smart he's funny and the thing that really is awesome about him is that he speaks to the heart um, he's also very collaborative he, his uh, his previous work the show um uh, just got um, like tons of people involved in doing crazy things all over the world <laughs> so but he, but he's he did a Kickstarter project recently to start off a new show and he uh, yesterday uh, posted or, or was it Monday posted this um invocation for beginnings which is a three-minute video he put up on youtube that is one of the one of the most inspirational things that i've seen in a while and as someone who's doing a startup and every day has to confront oh my god what am i doing and how am i going to get through all this uh this is a nice little inspiring piece and i encourage everybody to watch it um, if you're ever up to anything in your life which um, i hope is every day Uh, so uh that's really great, and and go check out zfrank.com. He's he's up to good stuff again. Well, he's always up to good stuff, but he's doing this new show, and so it should be a, it should be a fun year. Uh, okay, so the next thing this is a brand new thing. I haven't had a chance to try this out yet, so I'm taking a risk here. Um, and so Dr. Nick, um, who we all know and love, came out with a new set of magic spells for putting together Rails applications. And I like this because, um, I mean, I've even I even blogged about this a while ago, It's just like, how how do you get your Rails application started? And it's gotten really complicated, so Dr. Nick said, hey, let's make this easier to put together stuff. So he didn't want to call it recipes because everybody uses the term recipes, and so he calls these things scrolls, like from Dungeons and Dragons. They're somebody's spell that they wrote down, and you can customize a few bits of it, and, and it does the thing you want. So this awesome. is nice. Yeah, it 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 looks like it has the potential to turn into something awesome. So uh, and it needs some contributions from from people to get it to work on things like Heroku. And so you know, take a look at it, see how it works. I'm gonna give it a shot um, real soon and see how how it goes. Uh, but it, it, looks pretty promising. There, there is a little caveat here and, uh, you know, Dr. Nick has, uh, has, is an avowed, um, uh, project abandoner. So, so we're not really <laughs> don't know how, what the longevity of this project is. Uh, I, I think the best case scenario is that somebody gets excited about it and takes over maintenance of it and it, and it uh, continues on. So, and, uh, then I have one, um, uh, I, I haven't done a, like a, a health and lifestyle pick in a while. So my pick this week is for therapeutic massage therapy There's that redundant therapeutic therapy? Uh, therapeutic massage. Uh, so a so, uh, little known fact, I'm actually a trained massage therapist and I worked as a massage therapist for about a year when I was on break from being a programmer and, and I, I have, I have spinal issues. So I've gotten a lot of massage over, over my lifetime. Uh, but, um, it, you know, massage isn't just for you know, relaxing or feeling sexy or what have you. It's actually a really good therapeutic technique and is great for your overall health, um, and you know, especially your mental health too, uh, because it can help you uh, de-stress and relax. Uh, many of the same benefits of yoga. Uh, it, so, uh, I, my my uh, my secret plan for world peace is for everyone on the planet to get a massage once a week. And I, I challenge anyone to think of a world where that happens, where uh, where we have to worry about things like nuclear war. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, oftentimes you can find a massage by, uh, like, going through your chiropractor. They often have a the massage therapist who works in their office. Um, if you're lucky to, enough to live in a big city like San Francisco, there's a lot of access to massage therapists. Um, but uh, but uh, just one word of advice, if you're going to hire someone to do massage, um, it's good to go with someone who advertises themselves as a massage therapist, uh, because, uh, masseurs and masseuses, um, are often catering towards a different market. And I hope I didn't offend anyone who actually calls themselves a, a masseur or masseuse and, and, doesn't operate that way, but we'll leave it at that. <laughs> anyway, that's it for me. Uh, I can just see that.
0: Where are those launch <laughs> codes? Mr. President, I think you need a massage.
1: <laughs> it's, it's, it's exactly it. Yeah. All right.
0: Uh, Avdi, <laughs> what are your picks?
4: Uh, I think just one this week, uh, and it's Parallels Workstation. Uh, I used uh, Parallels back in my Mac days uh, to run, you know, Windows virtual machines uh, on a Mac, and and uh, hadn't used it since then, and hadn't really thought of them as doing anything other than than Mac stuff. Uh, but recently, uh, I've been doing some video editing inside of uh, Windows virtual machines because I enjoy pain, and. Um, I've been, I was searching for a better uh, desktop virtualization, specifically desktop virtualization uh, solution than uh, VirtualBox. And I tried VMware, and I had a ton of problems with it. And then somebody suggested Parallels, and I was like, Parallels? I thought they were just a Mac company. Uh, but they actually have Parallels Workstation for Linux, and it works really, really well. Um, I don't know what tricks they're pulling, um, but it seems... Uh, it seems like a faster virtualization than anything else I've tried, um, and it interops or interoperates with the, you know, the Linux window managers really well. It doesn't steal, steal the mouse and never give it back, and, um, and uh, it can talk directly to USB de- devices, and, and uh, you know, I'm actually able to do uh, video editing pretty comfortably, so um, Parallel's workstation.
0: Cool. Writing software so you can run Windows on your non-Windows machine. Sounds like those guys need a massage. All right.
1: <laughs> so, Am I ever gonna live this pick down? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I need a massage. I, yeah,
0: I do too. I'll tell you. All right, so I have a couple of picks. Um, they're actually related to podcasting more than programming. Um, the first one is—I uh, don't know if you've noticed in past episodes—I've tried to minimize it as much as possible, but uh, the air conditioning would come on in my office. And it's set up right above my mic. So it would turn on and you'd hear this. (laughs) And, you know, it sounded really nice. Um, So I spent $7 on Amazon and I got an air deflector that I put over the vent. And so now it blows on the wall instead of my microphone, which is very nice. Um, I also have a windscreen on it. So I actually had to blow pretty hard for you to hear it. Um, One other thing that I picked up, um, because I have a tendency to move my hands when I talk. Um, And so what happens is I'll I'll wind up bumping the boom arm that my microphone's on. And I had a shock mount on my old mic, but my my new mic, it's not so new anymore, Um, but my Heil PR-40 does not fit in the old um, shock mount. And uh, the shock mounts for the PR-40s, like the official Heil ones, which were the only ones I could find that said, yeah, your, your Heil will fit in here. Um, they're like a hundred bucks. And so I kept putting off getting one. So I finally got one and, uh, yeah, I've actually bumped my, uh, boom arm twice during this episode and I don't think anyone heard anything. My phone also vibrated and it absorbed the shock of the vibration going through the desk up the arm and into the mic. So you probably didn't hear that either. And, uh, so I, I just, I, I love those things. They're just so super nice. And uh, finally, one other thing, and I know this has been picked before, but every time I use it, it just makes me happy, and that's Guard. So if you're, if you're looking for something that can kind of do those uh, uh, routine tasks or, or set things up or things like that, uh, there, there are a zillion different plugins for Guard that just make your life wonderful. So I recommend those. One last thing that I'm going to recommend, um, and this is something, it's not a new concept, but a friend of mine put, put it together, and I, I like it. It's called Coast. And what it is is it's a mix-in for your controllers that basically provides you with your standard REST uh, stuff. So rather than running the generator and then having all this duplicated code all over the place, you just include the the uh, the gem and then, or you include the module and then from there you can actually customize things with with a callback system that, that this guy's written. So. Um, it, it's written by Nate Hopkins, who's a, a guy that I used to work with at Solution Stream. So anyway, those are my
2: picks. And Can I throw in a bonus pick? Sure. Overtime pick. Uh, something that was around the Twitterverse yesterday and I think is really interesting, definitely worth keeping an eye on. Uh, the Meteor system uh, for building JavaScript-powered web applications. Uh, it's just meteor.com. I've just started to dig through the docs, but uh, as one of my friends said This reminds me of what Rails looked like in 2005, um, which is a a pretty good uh, analogy to make. It looks very interesting.
0: Nice. All right, we got that in there. Um, Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. One thing I wanna remind you of is that we're gonna be doing our book club. I still don't think we've picked a date yet, but we are reading Working with Unix Processes. Is that what it's called? Yes. And uh, we're gonna have, the author on the show and uh you know what we usually do um i've read i've read quite a bit of it it's really really good um if you have some uh understanding of how linux works then you know some of it'll be review and some of it is kind of new and uh if you don't understand that stuff you're you're going to be pleasantly surprised with how handy that stuff is so um, I highly recommend you go check it out. Uh, we also got a discount code from the author, and so I will be putting that up on the on the show notes so that you can get the discount. Um, also, we're in iTunes, so if you want to go find us, you can find us in iTunes. If you're using something else, that's fine. Um, just uh, you know, use the RSS uh, link. And uh, I, I had a couple people let me know that they were having trouble with Instacasts. And uh, what they wound up doing was actually removing the, the podcast and then putting it back in and uh, that seemed to clear it up so they could get uh, the couple of past episodes they weren't able to get. So um, if you're having trouble with that, it's probably Instacast and not our RSS feed. Uh, also, I've had several requests to get us into Stitcher and we are in Stitcher now. So if you're using Stitcher to listen or you're using Stitcher and wish you could get the podcast that way, um, we're there now so you can get the episodes from there. And uh, with that, we'll we'll wrap this up and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, guys.